Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. I want to take a minute to connect you to our newest sponsor, Zenkai Sports, who are here with a question for you. Why do we sweat? Our body is perfectly designed to cool us down, but most apparel companies use moisture-wicking fabrics that remove our sweat, which makes us overheat faster and actually hurts our performance. Zenkai uses cutting-edge technology that repels sweat and other liquids. Zenkai apparel lets the sweat stay on your skin, keeping you cool for longer and repelling odor-causing bacteria. This means Zenkai apparel can be worn 10, 15, 20 times with no washing required. This lowers your carbon footprint and saves money, so you can be a hero with your planet and your family. Join the revolution for better apparel technology. What's in your ZNA? We've partnered with Zenkai, so if you head over to www.zenkaisports.com and use the discount code LYM20, you'll get 20% off your entire order. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston and today I have the privilege of speaking with Rich Hesketh. Rich has been a strength conditioning coach for many years and served as such for 19 seasons with the Calgary Flames of the National Hockey League until 2014. Prior to becoming a performance coach, he was a Canadian national track and field team member for nine years and ranked in the top three Canadian decathletes from 1988 to 1997. Rich had the privilege to represent Canada on 11 different national teams. He was the 1988 Canadian decathlon champion, four-time indoor combined events national champion. Rich has also coached track and field for 17 years with the University of Calgary Dinos and the Calgary Spartans Track and Field Club. He is currently the head of athletic development for the University of Calgary Dinos women's and the 2018 national champions men's teams. To round out his training days, Rich also works with the LPGA, a local professional golfers, hockey, football, and baseball players. He has been a leader in the human performance industry in Canada for many years, and I'm honored to have him on the show today. Welcome, Rich. Hey, thank you very much, Scott. Yeah, it's uh, it's nice to spend some time with a former colleague, so to speak, and no kidding, and the business, right? and the chat about uh, your your route and your life and stuff. We yeah. actually, you know, it's funny. Um, we've known each other for a long time, but not known each other in the sense we've never really sat down and had a a beer uh, or whatever in a room right. and, and really chatted for very long other than yeah. passing each other in the hall and asking for weight plates or something. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding, right? <laughs> uh, so hopefully we'll still get a chance to do that. <laughs> cool. Um, you uh, you grew up in Ontario, I understand, and then moved yeah. out to, to out west for school. But what was uh, where did you grow up in Ontario and what was life like growing up for you? Well, I grew up in the Niagara Peninsula. Um, so I was born in St. Catharines, moved to Niagara Falls, 
up to Guelph, back down to Grimsby, and uh, went to high school in Grimsby, Ontario, so right between St. Catharines and Hamilton there. And then uh, once I uh, graduated high school, went to McMaster University, just uh, just up the road in Hamilton. Mm. Yeah. And what's uh, what was your parents' influence? Like you grew up, how many how many siblings do you have and stuff? Yeah, I have. Uh, there's three of us. Um, I have an older brother and an older sister. Uh, my sister is uh, actually still is in here in Calgary. She got married in '79 and moved out during the the early boom in that okay. time. The oil industry uh, with their husband and uh, I have an older brother who's uh, back in Toronto now but has spent quite a bit of time in, in uh, South Africa. Um, my dad was an Anglican minister so oh, wow. um, I was a preacher's kid uh, okay. growing up so sometimes felt like you had a microscope um, you know where mm-hmm. and uh, you know often in the community um, having that kind of importance in the community in St. Catharines to start with um, felt a little bit of pressure to be good <laughs> you know yeah. um and to that end which is fine with me i'm sort of a a rules follower so that was okay with me my brother had a little more trouble with it he was a bit more uh, um of the rebel i guess okay. so um and then uh my sister um being older they both um were very accomplished in school uh, accelerated in their schooling um, and I just plugged along my way uh, one year at a time. <laughs> <laughs> so you kept your head down and kept grinding. In there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. How, how was sports a part of your, your life growing up? Was that something influenced by your parents, something that you sort of uptook and uh, out of your own interest in things or how did it flow? Um, early on. So I played hockey as sort of the, the nine and 10 year old when, uh, once we'd gone from St. Catharines, I played in Niagara Falls. So I played for a couple of years there. Um, mostly probably influenced from, uh, my brother. Um, he was a, a hockey nut, uh, loved it. And I sort of followed along in, in his footsteps from that side of it. Um, you know, we'd be often outside, um, playing hockey in the courtyard or, or out on the street and he'd be Foster Hewitt calling the, the plays. Um, and more times than not, he was Davey Keon and I was Ronnie Ellis and we were running around playing hockey. Um, I discovered I was pretty good at, as a street hockey goalie. So they'd throw me in there, pretend I was Jacques Plante and uh, fire pucks at my head. So um, he'd bring his older buddies around and, and fire it. So um Mostly recreational sport. I did get into the organized sport uh, for a couple of years again, playing hockey. Um, but at that time, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, NCCP coaching certification. There wasn't a lot of science around how to coach kids and athlete development from that side. So um, it became clear after a couple of years, um, my dad felt uh, like there wasn't enough uh, sportsmanship. There wasn't enough teaching around the sport. Uh, they said, you're not doing organized sport. You can do whatever you want in school, um, but uh, you're not going outside of uh, your school sport. So um, that changed things a bit for me. I ended up um, playing just the the sports, whatever whatever school sports there were. So mm-hmm. a little bit of baseball, a little bit of flag football, um, track and field when it came up. So, um, but I I dabbled in it. I wasn't really serious about it until I got into high school. Okay. Yeah. And how did track um, find you or did you find track? Um, a little bit of both. Uh, I I really do recall um, watching the Olympics, uh, 76 specifically with Greg Joy winning the, uh, the bronze <laughs> medal in high jump or 
bronze, silver medal in high Silver, jump. I think it was. Yeah. Um, and, you know, being elated with that. So at that time, I was uh, 13, almost 14. Um, and at that time, I thought, yeah, I'm going to be a high jumper, you know, as far as I was concerned. But, but you know, I didn't know how little I would grow, <laughs> that I wouldn't be sort of a 6'4", 6'5", high jumping type. I would stick around the 5'11 height and had to pick a different route to go. But um, along the way, um, again, tried a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, once I got out of um, junior high, I did, uh, again, I ran track there. And again, I was high jumping like crazy. Um, and having a lot of fun doing it and having some success. But um, it became awfully clear as I got into high school that I wasn't getting tall enough. <laughs> I could still jump, but um, I had to go a different route. But again, along that time, discovered football, um, played quite a bit of football in high school, uh, discovered I because I could jump, I made the basketball team. Um, I wasn't a great skill player at all. I was a forward at 5'11", um, but played a strong forward in the perimeter game where I usually throw it to the six five guys and let them do the work. So, (laughs) (laughs) so I was, I was the the prototypical hustle guy. So playing D and, and clamping down on the, on the, uh, on the defensive side. So, um, and then track and field was always there. Um, the running, jumping, throwing side, I had a, a really good coach in high school. He was a former decathlete, competed at the Pan American Games level and also competed at a master's level. Um, and that sort of getting got my wheels turning about the decathlon um, mm-hmm. so that when I did get to university, I had to make a choice. Do I play football um, or do I run track and field? So, yeah, so circumstances along the way, uh, really interesting before there were faxes and before there was any kind of um, fast ways of getting documents across. <laughs> when I applied to university at McMaster University, um, they received my marks, they received the GPA, and they said, well, you're on a waiting list mm-hmm. to get into university. And I was, didn't think any of it. I was like, okay, well, uh, I guess I'll just wait in here. And about two weeks before school was starting, I was reviewing my transcripts, paper, <laughs> <laughs> and looking at them and realized that um, – They had given me, instead of a... Okay, a short break here to tell you about our sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is for treatment skills and protocols and training methods and exercises, like an operating system on a smartphone is for applications. Fundamentally, reconditioning brings the worlds of therapy and performance preparation together in one systematic process that makes treatment and training systems more efficient and effective. Level 1 takes you through the fundamental assessment process and gives you a tactical approach to eliminate any issue that stands in the way of your client's progress towards quality movement and a healthy and high-performing state. Level 2 goes deep on context, analyzing and understanding variable movement patterns, gaining clarity on key movement attributes, and being exceptionally precise about your interventions and strategies. It then links to the overall preparation program and becomes deeply considered of the context of that program and the environments of preparation. Finally, our reconditioning specialist mentorship is a completely virtual experience you can engage in from the comfort of your home that allows you to benefit from our 50 years of professional practice in a high-quality community of practitioners. This eight-week program walks you through how to apply this powerful operating system in your environment and your circumstances irons out all the question marks, and ensures you are ready to deliver the most effective reconditioning practice to your clients. Head over to reconditioninghq.com to see what our next courses are being held and when our next mentorship is starting. 
join the reconditioning. They had it at 52%, which skewed my GPA. Um, so at that time, I'm like, ah, oh no, I got to. So I ran over to the office at the high school and said, look, these are wrong. And they checked it out and said, oh yeah, we completely messed up. <laughs> um, so they said, well, you're going to have to take these transcripts to the registrar at the university at McMaster. So mom, <laughs> I've got to go to McMaster and drop off my transcripts. So that's, that increased my GPA to the point where I was automatically in. But at that point I had missed training camp for football and I, my intent was to go and play football. Uh-huh. Um, and so I was like, Oh, like I'd missed rookie camp. I've missed any chance to be able to play football this year. Well, I'll run track, get faster for in track and field so that I can play football. And then I got hooked on track. <laughs> and so, and at the time, um, the, the group that was there, my coach, her name is Sue Wise. She, um, is out of the Toronto area now, but she was the head coach at McMaster university. Her, um, fiance was the second best decathlete in the country. His name was Milan Popovich. And I remember stepping into that situation and watching him train, doing the things he was doing and thinking, yeah, I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> Little did I know I, I had to start from scratch with hurdles and pole vault and discus and the real technical events. Um, but I was up for the challenge. So I spent a year training more as a, a jumper sprinter athlete. Mm. And then um, after that, that time, I made the commitment of, I would have been April 1983. I said to Sue, I said, I'd like to start training for decathlon. She said, you do understand what kind of a commitment that is. I said, yep, yep, I'm all in. And from then on, I became a decathlete. And that was, uh, that's the way that went. That's wild. Yeah. What, what was your, what was your favorite event of the 10? Um, well, the standard answer for every decathlete is, well, the decathlon is my favorite event. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, my favorite discipline, the one that I, probably had the most success with was long jump okay um in 19 so in 93 um i was ranked uh fifth in the country in long jump Mm -hmm. as well as third in the country in the decathlon so i had had a good long jump season and strangely enough i had had to change my my leg in long jump because i'd had a a patellar tendon knee surgery in Mm -hmm. 1990 and we decided well why don't we try long jumping off your right leg instead of I was doing everything off my left mm. um so that was real really interesting for me to actually I ended up jumping better off what would be my wrong leg which was actually my right leg <laughs> <laughs> or correct leg right I guess yeah, that's yeah. The, the proper way to put it that's yeah. wild yeah so, so you ended up it influenced you to go out to Calgary and work with Les Gromantic who I've uh, spent some time with and my uh, great guy um what what drew you to him and to going there I guess he was the he was the man at the time I guess in Canada, yeah uh, decathlon yeah and um well in many ways he still is but um <laughs> I honestly the way that all worked out is my coach Sue from McMaster took a job as um more of a coaching administrative role at the University of um, Saskatchewan. Uh, There was no one in the area that I wanted else that I wanted to train with. So I moved out to Saskatchewan for a year Um, (laughs) and almost exactly to the day, um, like August 26th um, year. So that would have been August 26th, 1986. She left and went back to York University. Um, And my decision at the time, out in uh, Saskatoon, I could either stay in 
at uh, U of S and mm. train there. I could go back to Toronto and train with Sue, but I didn't really want to be in Toronto. Um, or um, I could see what Les was up to. <laughs> and um, interestingly enough, at that time, uh, in 86, in August of 86, was I was on the fringe of making my first national team. Um, from that, there was a, a province versus province uh, competition it, at U of S in Saskatoon. Um, Les brought his Alberta team out with him. And I knew he had a really good training group out there. There are about four or five guys out there uh, or out here uh, training in decathlon. And um, after the competition, I got up the nerve and sat down with him and said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to move out to Calgary. My sister lived out here already, so that was kind of an easy move. But mm. I said, I'm moving out to Calgary. Um, I'm going to finish my degree at the U of C. Um, and then I'm... I'd like to train with you. And he was lukewarm to that at best. He's like, Oh, you know, we'll start base training, come out September 15th. If you survive, we'll see. <laughs> That's a good impression of him. <laughs> you know, and, and it was, and honestly, that was it. He was, he was really lukewarm on me. He could care less whether it came out or not, honestly. Mm. Um, and he does tell a funny story about that. He said like, kind of showed up in sort of this, this, I think it was a, um, I don't know, some jungle pattern thing on my shirt. And he was just like, who is this guy? Like, but <laughs> I, I was, you know, I was determined. I was like, I'm going to show this guy that I mean business. I was, I showed up early practices. I was basically that the, the adage, you know, the first one there, the last one to leave kind of idea. Mm. I did exactly what I was told everything that he asked me to do, I, I did it, even if that was falling down, dying at the end. Um, but I, I put my time in and gained his respect from that mm. side as, as an athlete. And, and to this day, we still laugh about that one. And at that time, and to be honest, you know, him coming from sort of the Eastern Bloc Romanian um, style of training, it was, you know, I'll work you. And if you survive, you'll succeed. And I wasn't one to quit on it. So I just kept working and working and working. And that was, I mean, my upbringing was from a fighting spirit, being a, a youngest child and getting picked on a lot. And, and quite frankly, uh, when I was living in Niagara Falls, I used to, I used to be pretty much beat up once a week <laughs> um, for about yeah. two years. Yeah. Until I come from, you know, I had time to reflect on it. And it's something that's, it's carried me through really well. <laughs> mm -hmm. Wow, your resiliency. That's yeah. very cool. Um, so tell me about that time in Canadian sport, in summer sport, because you oh, kind yeah. of were a summer sport athlete before, you know, there was a lot of money coming into yeah. summer sport, especially. I mean, when, winter sports always had a little bit of a, a an edge on summer sport. But yeah. now I would say it's more balanced but back in those days uh, you know it was a pretty spartan territory you know was that challenge did that make it more challenging to you or did were you kind of oblivious to that reality based on just where you were no well i absolutely was not oblivious to it um <laughs> I, I knew there was an imbalance um and i also knew there was uh, an imbalance in power um so those who were good um were funded and um were taken care of and those of us who were developing um, were not. Um, mm. so, um, I had obviously when I graduated from, from university, 
um, I went directly into the fitness industry and started working, uh, you know, independently in the fitness fitness industry. Um, got involved with a, a fitness club, a local club, which is long gone now, but um, and then uh, got involved in personal training so that I could basically write my own schedule. Mm. Um, so I, I wouldn't book clients um, during my training times. And then I would pick and choose my times when I could train clients. Mm. Um, so, but yeah, we were very aware of the imbalance um, from that side of it. And sadly, um, the year that I, that I that I won the national championship um, in 1988 was the same year that Ben Johnson got caught for steroid use. Mm. Um, so, and then from then on. Um, Pretty much any company was really leery about sponsoring or any support for any kind of track and field athlete, mm. not just sprinters. Um, but we, there was definitely a, a shroud that was placed over the track and field community. Mm. Um, and so, with that, with that taking place, and I think, um, I think Dave, you could probably ask Dave Steen this too. I mean, he won the bronze medal in the decathlon, first medal in Canada in decathlon ever. Um, how much that affected his sponsorships and his ability to to take advantage of winning a very prestigious medal in a very prestigious event in the Olympics. So mm-hmm. um, I think we were all um, we were all hurt by it um, from that side of it, but it didn't change the fact that we all had our goals and objectives of how we wanted to do and what we wanted to do as athletes for mm-hmm. sure. So um, it just changed the path of how you had to get your own funding. What was, what's the biggest thing, biggest takeaway for you or biggest learning piece for you from being a, an elite athlete that's transcended or carried through into what you've done professionally beyond that? Oh, that's a loaded question, but um, I think probably one of the things that um, I realized as an elite athlete is you, uh, you set up your objectives and you have your goal setting um, yearly, monthly, um, annually, and as a big picture, you have your, your major goal. So my objective and was always from the day I started in decathlon was to make an Olympic team as a decathlete. Um, my best chance probably would have been the 92 Olympics. Mm. And I ended up tearing my lower abdominals, um, during the trials. Mm. Um, and that was during the fourth event, which is high jump. And I still had six more events to go. Um, the interesting thing about it, and as much of a struggle it was, as it was mentally and physically, I ended up getting through that um, that competition because in my mind, I had already done the visualization. I had already done the imagery that had me at the Olympics, at the closing ceremonies, celebrating the fact that it had already been. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the, the things that when I sit back and think about it, how the heck did I complete six more events in a decathlon um, with torn lower abdominals. They torn, they weren't just a little bit hurt. Um, So that's, you know, 400 meters uh, after the, to end the first day. And then the second day to wake up, I was curled up in a corner um, in the hotel room, um, taking whatever Advil and whatever was legal at the time that you could take. Um, to to deaden the pain mm. and then to have to run hurdles, throw discus, pole vault, throw javelin, <laughs> and then run a 1500 at the end of it. Um, and then to f- cross the line realizing that 
I had, yeah, I'd made the top three at the trials, which was one of the criteria, but my score and my, obviously my fitness, it would never send someone in, in the condition I was in, even if I had made the, the, the standard. Mm. Um, so, but when I sit back and I think about what was physically possible because of the mental state that I was in and the amount of preparation I'd done mentally to um, get to my objective, it's, that's one of the things that's carried me a long, long way. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's one of the areas that I realize how strong that mental imagery, um, the belief system is in taking you further than you ever could. And that's one of the things that Les always said to us. He said, you got to try to be the best in the world. You've got to work toward being the best in the world. Cause if you don't, you have no hope in hell of ever getting there, mm-hmm. which, which, Exactly so. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, if you don't, if you're not trying to get there, how the heck are you going to get there? Mm-hmm. Um, whether you get there or not, the hurdles that you're going to come across, you're going to go further than you ever thought you could. And so that's something that I've always taken with me, um, right from the athletic side to the business side to my professional side in coaching now. And I can I can explain that to my athletes and give them a pretty clear picture of what's possible, regardless of whether I'm an Olympian or not. Um, it's, it's what I went through to, to accomplish the things that I have. That's cool. Um, it's interesting. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm going to be interviewing just after you, uh, Jessica Zelenka, who I'm sure, you know, uh, half athlete and so similar, similar venue for the ladies. Um, this idea of having, you know, multiples, uh, in essence, domains of sport that you're you're participating in sprinting throwing all these different things yeah you know in in some ways a metaphor for life and i'm curious you know when you when you whether you've ever thought of that and how you sort of transcend that but you've got to sort of balance what what do i put in where do i decide i want my strengths to be how do i manage my weaknesses within the context of all that and it is kind of a meta- metaphor for life because you've got all these different things whether it's being a dad a job all these different things that you have to balance and manage when you look back at being a decathlete do you think that having to have managed that and balanced that understood that was helpful in you being a better you know father and things like that as you've gone on in life or do they do they not link at all oh i i no i i completely believe that they they're linked up um (laughs) um in that in that regard um and again my um my move to come here and and work with less um you know you know fresh out of university and thinking i i knew everything coming out of university and then realizing when you start working with someone with that knowledge that you don't know anything. Um, but <laughs> his, his attention to detail and planning um, and having a big picture um, view of, of what is necessary for you to accomplish the things that you need to accomplish um, is, a, is a discipline that I've taken with me mm-hmm. um, in every, every aspect. So the discipline of sleep routines, eating routines, um, hydration routines, recovery routines, and training routines um, in itself. The, the planning of the training itself is, I take that with every aspect. Mm. So, for example, uh, and I'm trying to do this with intent with my son, who's now 16 and getting involved in football and rugby and track and field <laughs> and the whole thing, right? So um, for most of his 
most of the time, well, now the time that I'm not in hockey, so I can be at home in the mornings with him. So this has been five years now. So since he's been uh, 11, uh, 10, 11 years old, I've made a point of being downstairs, sitting with him, having breakfast together and sort of talking about what's coming in the day and what do you have to look forward to and what do you got going on? And, and as casual as a conversation it is, it for sure is with intent and with the intent that he gets in the habit of first thing that he's doing is making sure that he's getting the proper nutrition for him to get and have a good day mm. from that side of it. Um, so it's those little things and, mm. and it's kind of cool because that's one of the areas that, um, that Linda, my wife has said, she says, I, your discipline is, is ridiculous. And I don't, I don't know any other way, honestly, mm. I, I don't know a, a different way to do it. So I don't even consider it discipline. It's just a habit that okay. I have. Um, so from that side of it, um, every coach that I've ever worked with has, has given little bits and pieces of that to me. So my high school football and track and field coaches, uh, my basketball coach, especially in high school, um, and, and Sue at McMaster university and Les, they've all had contribution to what I am right now. Mm -hmm. And I've tried to take little bits and pieces of all of them. And mm -hmm. again, um, Les made a great point around mentorship and he said, you know, you, you can, you can be around other coaches and you can be mentored by coaches. And sometimes being a mentorship is finding out what it is you don't want to be, mm. not necessarily what you want to be. Mm. And initially I was like, Oh no, no, like it's, it's, it's never been anything like that, but it's a fact. It's true. Mm -hmm. There are little bits and pieces of the things that I like that I keep and the things that I don't like, I don't do. There's some things in, in all my coaches personalities and all my training partners personalities that I love and others that I want nothing to do with. And, <laughs> and you can, you can, you can design your own based on your own experience. So I think that's, that's, I have, I think I have a master's in hard knocks in many ways that way. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. How do you um, make the transition into professional hockey? How does that, how does the, the circuitous moment of, of shifting to that happen for you? Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's a great one. Cause in, um, so let me step back in 92. Um, I was still training as an athlete. Obviously we were, um, that was, uh, for the Barcelona uh, Olympics. I had just gotten back from a, uh, a training camp in Arizona. I got a phone call from Theron Fleury's, uh, agent. And they said, uh, Theo is looking for his own personal strength and conditioning coach. Um, and uh, we had a guy in mind and someone at the fitness area, the studio, Heaven's Fitness that I was working at said, no, before you go and hire this guy, you got to go talk to Rich. So I met Theo. Um, we had an interview. He basically interviewed, interviewed me for the job. Uh, and he said, yeah, I want to train with this guy. So that was my first step into um, professional hockey. Mm. to that side of it then along the way over the years i picked up a couple more clients here and there and uh, he and i trained together exclusively um in the summer times uh for two years it was just he and i five days a week for the summers and working on his his physical conditioning mm. i didn't know what sort of demons he was dealing with at the time mm. so i look back at that and i think holy 
cow. I can't believe some of the stuff that he was able to do on, in the condition that he was in. Um, <laughs> like, honestly, yeah, it's I, worked absolute, for, it's I worked with him in New York. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Absolutely remarkable to think that this person, this, this athlete is, is competing at the highest level doing some amazing things, but having to put up with what he was putting up with mentally. Mm. Um, so, um, with that along the way, so in 95, um, the Calgary Flames Hockey Club cleaned house. They uh, got rid of the medical staff, uh, the training staff, like everyone um, mm-hmm. from the staff side, coaching staff, everyone was, was done. And they hired on uh, Pierre Paget as the, uh, the head coach. And um, Pierre hired uh, Terry Kane uh, mm-hmm. as the, the physiotherapist, the athletic mm-hmm. trainer for the team. And uh, they basically said to Terry, okay, you're in charge of strength and conditioning. And Terry said, oh, wait a minute. Uh, if we're going to do that, I want to bring in somebody who knows what he's doing. And at that time, um, obviously, I'd been working with, uh, with Theo. I knew Terry as a practitioner. He had helped me through my knee surgeries and some injuries and was helping me that way. And he was also connected to Heaven, Heaven's Fitness as well. Um, he said, well, let's interview you. And I met Pierre and Pierre was like, I was I, like, to be honest, I was, could have been in the best shape, shape of my life at the time. So I was walk, I was walking the walk as well. Yeah. So imagine, you know, top of your, top of your game in fitness, you walk in and say, yeah, I'm, I would like, you know, I'm interviewing as a strength and conditioning coach. And Pierre's like, yeah, you're it. You're the guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't as much what I knew <laughs> as who I knew. Mm-hmm. and and what I looked like at the mm-hmm. time um having said that and having the experience around working with 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 Theo and a couple of other players um I was pretty confident that uh I could help out but in the back of my mind back <laughs> way far back I was thinking what the heck am I doing in hockey I'm I'm sprinting jumping throwing and now I'm getting involved in a gliding sport mm-hmm. and like I'm scratching my head going what like what am I doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but to that end, um, I had to do a whole lot of self-education because, I mean, you know, strength and conditioning was not really a thing. I mean, mm-hmm. there was a handful of guys in the league, mm-hmm. um, Peter Twist being one of them, right? And, and you were in there um, doing great work. I mean, there weren't a lot of us around. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, um, it wasn't the job. It was it was almost an afterthought. Mm-hmm. So that first year that I, they hired me in 95, I was still holding down a position as the head of personal training at, at a club here in Calgary um, and doing some personal training work at Heaven's Fitness. And um, they'd say, well, we're going to give you a call on the odd occasion to have you come in and do a workout with the team. <laughs> so whenever I came in, they said, yeah, come in and do it and bill us your time. And that's how it started was I, I must have got called in five times for a workout. And so I'd show up. Theo was part of the team at the time. I'd walk in and I remember Robert Reichel. I would, I would walk onto the bench <laughs> during practice and, and Robert would look at me and he'd skate over to the bench and he'd look me dead in the eye and go, Rich, go home. because he knew i was there i'm like oh great like so (laughs) i wasn't it wasn't really positive and you know he'd chuckle about it because he knew yeah okay we need to we need to train we need to work out but it was uh 
that was sort of the start of it all. Mm. And then as the years went on, the importance for the the training system and the importance for the fitness leading into training camp became more and more. Um, and so in after four years in the league is when I signed my first more full-time position with the team. And I became on more as an employee, contracted employee with the Calgary Flames Hockey Club. Mm-hmm. And then that, that continued on until 2014. <laughs> it's uh yeah, yeah we probably we have very similar i'm sure experiences yeah. in, the, in the early days of the guys who uh who who had never really invested themselves in that kind of training and then and then all of a sudden there were you know there were these guys who were supposed to know everything telling yeah. them what to do and yeah. you know, what do you know about hockey and all this exactly. guys? <laughs> yeah yeah one of the i think um there was a story and i i wish i could remember who it was um came in to talk to players. I think it was when they, when they were in St. Louis and I don't know if it was Bob Kiersey, but it was a track and field coach who was coming in to talk. And he said to, uh, they were presenting, you know, you know, you've got to train, you, you know, get faster, stronger, more explosive, more fit, do the work. And um, I want to say someone of, of Gary Suter's ilk, mm-hmm. he raised his hand and said, hey, do uh, track and field athletes play hockey to get better for track and field? And it's like, <laughs> which completely ruined <laughs> any kind of uh, um, credibility, right? So it's like, yeah. oh man, like that's a good one. Or, you know, the old, you know, you hear Wayne Gretzky saying, I never heard a dumbbell score a goal, right? <laughs> no, you're right. But not all of us have the skill of that guy, right? So, yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing. And then, you know, the older guys realizing that, okay, these young guys are screwing it up for all of us because they've learned that if you train all year round, you're going to be better for your sport, mm-hmm. um, which was, I think, a bit of an apparition for some of the older guys. Um, but I think that was the kind of the turning point. And I really started seeing that changing um, in the early 2000s. We started mm-hmm. seeing a lot more of um, guys hiring more um, individual strength and conditioning coaches or getting part of a, of a training group together um and and really trusting those guys to help uh, extend their careers really i mean add a year to your career and that could be a million or two mm-hmm. right so that's you know that's a pretty nice return on on spending a summer of training so was there a linchpin professor was there a linchpin athlete during the time that you were there that really made a difference in your ability to do your job like somebody who believed in what you were doing and sort of supported you absolutely jerome mcginlaw Okay. Not a shadow of a doubt. I was in, in from, I mean, some of the horror stories I've heard of, of high end players early on, um, early in my career, not wanting to train or having really not doing much of anything. Mm -hmm. Um, Jerome took it to another level. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and to be quite honest, early on his career, when he came into with the team in 97, and I remember doing the fitness testing with him, his physiological results were not very good. Mm. be honest he was you know you look at at what what athletes are now the the hockey players are now it's wasn't even close mm. um but you know after a couple of years of sort of education and you know staying in his ear and and working from that side of it um he made the commitment to to better himself and he was a self-educator make no question about it he spent a lot of time reading um, and a lot of time learning about his own body and how he could 
uh, get himself as as good as he can. But mm. he for sure took the ideas of training more like a sprinter, sure linear, but add the lateral components to it. Um, as and the things that I brought to him and and went with it. So there've been I've had a couple of athletes like that that I've been very thankful that have been part of uh, my career because. It's those guys. So for me, it'd be in the Jerome McGinley's, uh, the Robin Regeers, uh, Mark Giordano's, mm. those kinds of guys who you hand them the program and they pretty much follow it to a T. And they may add in their own little things that they need, that they know that they need. Mm. Um, but they're following the format of how, how to train from the planning side of it. And they come out, come out of the other side as one of the fittest guys in the team or the fittest guys in the team. And that reputation sort of precedes them to mm-hmm. that side. So um, if, if, if you ever need to know if your program works, just find a guy like that who's going to do exactly what you tell him and then get the mm-hmm. physiological result, results because of it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. I mean, Jerome, by, without a shadow of a doubt, was one of the – it made my life easy because I could stand in front of a group of young prospects and say, well, it's good enough for this guy. Mm-hmm. Is it good enough for you? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm interested because uh, I, you know, I experienced uh, my time in the league never winning a cup. And, um, you know, it's, I'm curious how you, uh, while you did your job, because uh, this is something I always struggled with, was knowing you did a good, good work, even though the team didn't succeed at the end of the day, because only one yeah. team succeeds. So it's, yeah, it's trying to do really good work and get the guys where they need to be. But then, you know, the, the season doesn't go so well, or the wheels fall off. And then you're kind of looking at, well, how, how, what kind of job did I do? How did you how did you find validity in the work that you were doing? That's a really good question. Um, I think when a team doesn't succeed because we care enough about uh, the athletes that we're working with and the team that we're part of, you, you'll always self-evaluate and sometimes question um, what it is that you've done, if it is the right thing or, or not the right thing. Um, the validity that I've found, and, and again, I, we were close to winning the cup <laughs> in 04, mm-hmm. um, but where you want to be at the top of the the pinnacle um the validity that i'm finding is the number of people that i hear saying you know you remember that remember that workout that we did or do you remember that training session or do you remember these things i still do those things Mm. or um i would like my my son to do that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. and and that in itself speaks volumes as far as i'm concerned to have and again, to have Jerome call me last summer and say, can you do a session with my kids mm. and, and go through athletic development with them? Like, oh my gosh, really? Like, I'd be honored <laughs> to do mm-hmm. something like that. Um, so where if you, don't, if you don't win a title or if you don't win a championship, you're still kind of scratching your head thinking, okay, what can I do to be better? Mm-hmm. Um, to, have, to have that validity in itself to me speaks volumes to that side of it. So that keeps my head up for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very proud of that in itself. For the odd time I'll get a, I'll get a text or an email or something with a, a screenshot of a workout and someone going, I'm still doing this crazy workout that you made us do, you know, 27 years ago or whatever it is. So, um, so those are kind of, those are neat and to me. Um, it's the legacy of what you can leave behind and hopefully 
the education around it. There are still some things that I have players tell me, do you remember me telling me that if you, for example, if you eat an apple, it gives you as much stimulant as a, as a coffee, but lasts longer. Well, I still mm-hmm. eat an apple if I have to get ready for a game or whatever it is, it, or just little things about um, something about training or, you know, potentially an explosive power or something that you, that I told them 15, 18, 19 years ago, or 20 years ago. And they go, I still remember you saying that. And I may not even remember who said, said it, but mm-hmm. okay. Like, that's cool. Like that's, awesome. that's, that's so neat. That legacy that, I mean, there's, there's some things that I'm sure you've done as well, that mm-hmm. um, you have athletes come back and said, I remember you telling me that and I still mm-hmm. use it today. That's like that in itself is the legacy that, that I think we all hope we have. Yeah. It's awesome. Here again with another word from our sponsors, Zenkai Sports, who want to let you in on a little secret. Performance apparel hasn't changed much in the last 20 years. Most apparel is still based on moisture-wicking synthetics, which not only make you more overheat faster, but are toxic for your body and the environment. Synthetics don't biodegrade, so that stinky workout shirt you have to throw out after six months, it lasts for thousands of years in landfills. Zenkai is the only cotton-based training apparel on the market, keeping your body safe from those scary petroleum-based synthetics found in most workout gear and giving you that extra edge when it counts. Be a part of the solution and join the revolution for better apparel technology at www.zenkaisports.com. What's in your ZNA? For 20% off your entire order, please use the discount code LYM20. So I want to build off of that, Rich, a little bit, um, this legacy proposition and relationships with athletes and sort of get into a little bit about that, that, that idea that we have to build, you know, both of us have experienced this where you have to build a pretty intimate relationship with these players to get them to do what they need to do and to buy into the work that we want them to do. We don't have necessarily the hammer that the coach has. I mean, sometimes we do, but effectively we don't get to decide whether they play or don't play all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, how you navigated that professionally where you're, you're trying to build a, a rapport with a guy, you're trying to connect with them in some cases, you connect better with some guys and with other guys. Right. And then, you know, how how what was challenging about that and what was uh what was maybe powerful about that for you um well you know what that's a really interesting topic and i think something that uh, anyone who gets into the business or who is involved in coaching or doing any kind of training from that side is needs to consider and there's a huge trust um component i think especially with um hockey players or, or pro players period because I think from a very young age, they they consider themselves and they realize they are considered as assets mm-hmm. um, and a little bit less of um, the human side um, when they think of themselves that way. So um, I was always really aware of trying to build trust with the players that um, new or, or, or current players um, from that side of it. And, and I took an approach uh, of an athlete first mentality. So being uh, early in my career, so in the in '95 and '96, I still was an athlete myself, mm. um, so I could relate to those, um, both the training as well as the mindset side of it. I, I tried to treat athlete first and treat them as as athletes, not as hockey players, mm. um, but as an athlete first, and and sort of give them the advice based on um, that performance. 
and, and then really, <laughs> sadly or or not, the, the people who I tended to connect with who uh, would stick with the program more were the guys who got injured mm. <laughs> because we would spend a lot of time with those guys um, mm-hmm. trying to get them back. And whether that's a, you know, a three week, um, six week or 12 week period or whatever it is in between, um, that's a lot of time to spend one-on-one with, with a guy. And, and that's where I found that if someone wasn't a true um, totally bought in to the training or, or totally bought into um, the ideas that you have, if, if you take the opportunity and the time with someone who's been injured and get them, keep their downtime as low as possible. Um, inevitably at that point, I'd have a player who would, who would follow the training program for the summer and mm. the compliance side of it was far greater. Mm. And, you know, I've had more times, um, more times than not had a player saying, you know, gosh, you know, I was, you know, I was so happy that you were around for those injury times. And it really gave me a picture of what it was you were asking me to do. So that when it came to the summer, I could understand um, your language and what you were asking, and and you know, have a, a really, um, I really trusted what you did that way. So, mm-hmm. um, from a from what could be a fairly negative situation of a guy not being able to play and being injured, um, we could always often turn the table to make it a real positive experience to give mm-hmm. them maybe something that they didn't have before. Um, and, you know, whether it was a, you know, prehabilitative corrective work, if it was a lower body injury, we could clean up things from basically from the waist up and mm-hmm. even their, their one good leg, um, really taking an approach of, um, w- one of the best things that was ever said to me, um, as an athlete, and I, I, I took it with me as, as a strength and conditioning coach was, um, from Terry Kane, who is the uh, physiotherapist and athletic mm-hmm. trainer. Um, early in my career, uh, 95 to 99, he was with the Flames. Um, but as an athlete, he I, I had a knee injury, and I, I went to see him as an athlete to treat me before we even worked together. And he said, if you think of it, your injury is about the size of a loony. It, it's really not that big, but it consumes your entire body, your entire being as an athlete because you've lost control over that one small part of your body. And, and what he tried to express to me was, you know, take more of a, a big picture of you. The rest of your body is fine and you mm-hmm. can still train. You can do everything you need to do to be in as great a shape as possible once that injury has healed and you're fully cleared to go back to, to participating. Mm-hmm. And that really turned the table um, professionally for me and how I approached injury for other players and um in fact, you know, for, for anyone, for that matter, with it, something niggling or nagging them, you can, you can make modifications and adjustments along the way. And that, having that ability to be flexible enough, come to a fork in the road and see which way you need to go from it, mm-hmm. um, the guys recognized that and, and really trusted me to make the right decision for them. Mm. Um, and, and that trust for sure is what's bred um, – sort of the relationships that I've, that I've had with, with the players that we've had. And like you said, some of them you don't really connect with that well. And some of them, there's a real resistance mm. uh, to the training, but that's just a handful mm-hmm. really from that side. That's um, I love that story. Actually, that's, uh, I might use that. if you Yeah, please. Yeah. It's, it's a good one. I, I, I <laughs> met Terry many years ago. I haven't seen him in many years, but uh, he was a, an influencer in my career early on for sure. Right. Yeah. 
I'm, I'm interested too, uh, to spin off that trust piece on the next layer, which is, you know, you, you've got that coach, conditioning coach, athlete kind of triad. And yeah. then there's also the clinician in there too, the therapist, et cetera. But, yes. You know, a lot of coaches, uh, and this is where we're always tr- sort of treading very, you know, lightly and managing. <laughs> I'm just curious what your thought process was. Coach wants to know, you know, who's who's giving full effort, who's d- lagging, who's dragging, who's tired, who's not, all the yeah. different things that are going on. On the other side, you're kind of here because we're in the room all the time. We're hearing all these the stories. We know so-and-so went out last night, probably shouldn't have. This happened, that happened, da-da-da-da. And you're kind of managing the trust with yeah. the reality of what they should be doing. Yeah. And I'm just curious like to hear another, you know, a peer of mine who worked in the league, how you manage that, how you sort of navigated those waters at times. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's always, and has been, and, and sort of will remain being a, a, a tough issue to, to find that balance for mm-hmm. sure. Um, I had sort of, I mean, I say I went through nine head coaches mm-hmm. um, in my career. So I had a, a myriad of <laughs> experiences styles with, with different styles, right? So um, sort of the heavy-handed Brian Sutter kind of and Daryl Sutter kind of idea to, um, you know, Greg Gilbert, who is a little more of a player's coach and um, would let things happen. And then even as kind of Brett Sutter was or Brent Sutter was another one of the coaches. So I had three Sutters as coaches. Wow. Um, Brent was probably the one that um, – tried to give me some uh, intuition into how he felt the team was and the players. Um, He was one of the only coaches I had who would approach me and say, okay, I'm watching them on the ice, but they're not looking really sharp. Um, Maybe we should just, you know, do some sort of activation or recovery work and, and just let me do my thing. Um, But certainly gave some of of his own intuition as to what he saw on the ice. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he was fully aware of of some of the antics that could go on if someone had gone out or or if the team had gone out. But he wasn't he wasn't unsupportive of that because he understood the team building that went on with with things like that. Um, If there was a individual issue, that was a different story. Um, But I was rarely put in a position um, until really the the last coach that I had where um, they would ask me, you know, tell me about this player. Mm. Um, it was more um, let's have a global picture and, and you manage that side of it as much mm. as you can. Um, on the medical side, on the clinician side, I was again, really fortunate to have some um, really good people um, from that side of it. And mm. we worked very, very closely together, mm-hmm. respected, uh, our own boundaries as from, you know, the line between returning to play and the injury side and not crossing over. Mm-hmm. So I was constantly, and it worked out well because my door is right beside their door and I just walk in and go, here's what's going on. Like, is there things that we should do or shouldn't do? And the training, the training room, the medical training was right beside our, our training space. So the, mm-hmm. the strength conditioning area. So they could see through the window what it was that it was doing and thumbs up or thumbs down or whatever it is, we could, we could get instant uh, feedback and give and take from each other mm-hmm. from that way. So it was a really good situation for me. Um, and there was a super um, team aspect of not trying to step into someone else's area, mm-hmm. but also respecting what the other person knew. So 
Mm-hmm. I was I was super fortunate from that cool. side. I learned a ton from from the clinician side, and I learned a ton from the, the coaching side. And sometimes I think as a strength and conditioning coach, you feel like you're a little bit in an island because mm-hmm. you are sort of sitting in the middle of it all. And then the players are coming to you with their own issues and, and even just to be an extra ear to talk to and, um, you know, confidence and, you know, performance and how can I feel better or, or from that side of it. It's a, um, it's a really unique situation to be an athletic development or a strength and conditioning coach because you, you can extend someone's career in mm-hmm. many ways. And just, just by giving them the, the right advice and helping them through um, whatever it's connective tissue strengthening or, or getting stronger or getting more fit or aerobic conditioning, or whatever it is, speed development, um, something that's going to enhance a player's career. And when players recognize that, holy cow, you get, you get a full buy-in and that's, that's pretty exciting for me. That's the thing that I, and I was really fortunate too, because the leader of our, of the team for the longest time, Jerome McGinley was always the fittest guy. He was, mm. and he was, he was like an open book. He was just teach me everything, you know, and I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And, and I've, I've had, there are a few of those athletes um, in the national hockey league that I've had that, um, I was really fortunate to have those guys because um, it's easy to say, yeah, if it's good for Jerome, it's got to be good for you to a young kid from that mm-hmm. side of it. So, yeah, I, I was really fortunate for sure in my career because I've heard some horror stories of, of of guys who are extremely talented, but that's they are not interested in the training side and the performance side of it. I think maybe that's getting better, but I think there's still a little bit of it around. Right. In your experience of... If you got to sort of have a, a puzzle of pieces yeah. that cr- created a coach, a great coach, um, and I mean like the team coach, yeah, um, what would be the pieces you would put together to create the great coach? What are, what are the, the key pieces in your viewpoint that create successful coaches? Um, well, for sure, I think you need a good technical coach from the, the side of, um, of the X's and O's side mm-hmm. of things. Um, but as a, a head coach, being able to delegate and often trust the, the people who you have around you to, mm. to do what they do and do it well. And sure, touch base, make sure they're, they're on top of it. Um, but as a, as a head coach, I think there needs and what's what's going to push their buttons to that side so there may be a player who responds really well to sort of the the punitive you know what's wrong with you get yourself going kind of mentality and then there are other guys who would who would crumble at something like that and it's really important as a head coach to have a clear picture of that and it's it's changing right it's a Mm -hmm. it's a really dynamic uh, with with player personnel every year someone someone new is coming in or getting a few guys coming in who are new and it's from that side of it uh, the teaching side is important but the human side i think is more important mm-hmm. um and and that's what's going to give um the players that's what's going to give you the buy-in to the players um is to to really show that you care for somebody still be able to say hey like, i don't I, I don't really like giving you 
heck for what you're doing because I really like you, but that was a junk play. Like, I mean, <laughs> if they can understand that it's coming from the right place, mm-hmm. that's a huge part. And it, it's, it's super important, I think, to be a little bit vulnerable um, to let that know, but also no one to have the hammer and, and be able to say, look, you know, cut and dry. This isn't personal. This is, you know, you didn't play well enough, so you're not going to mm-hmm. get the minutes that you want. Um, and then on top of that, um, as a head coach, you are a little bit of a manager, right? So you're managing the medical team, you're managing your strength and conditioning coach, you're ma- managing your coaching staff um, and the video. And um, obviously you want to surround yourself with some really good people and then manage around that, that side of it. Um, again, the, the best head coaches that I've had um, – haven't necessarily tried to get into anyone else's space. They've said, I trust what you do, do what you do and just do it well. And, mm-hmm. and those are the ones who've really had some, some massive success. And I mean, Daryl Sutter, for example, as heavy handed as, as sometimes you would feel he was, he let me do what I do because he, he trusted it. Um, and I, I fully respect that side, that side of it, rather than saying, I know more about conditioning than you do. So, you know, this Mm -hmm. is what I think you should do. Um, And I've I've had a few coaches like that, which is pretty refreshing. Yeah. (laughs) So I don't know if I really got to that, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of exactly what, what, or, I mean, cause everyone's a little bit different, right? Like head head coaches um, get different things out of different people for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I would much rather have someone to be completely honest across the board with everybody mm-hmm. and tell you like it is rather than you know, sort of not give you the full picture and not give you the full benefit of the doubt as far as you knowing what you're doing. If, if you screwed up, then you know, let's, find, let's fix it together. Not, you know, don't just leave someone out there by themselves. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I've always felt that the communication piece and the human interaction piece was probably one of the biggest from my perspective but i think we also have our biases in that based on our own way of communicating <laughs> right. degree. but you know for me I, I felt like you know the x's and o's piece i think you can supplement with good assistant coaches and yeah. <clears throat> but i think you, that management slash communication piece is a big big one for coaches for sure you, uh, you know, I talked to Reg Grant a while ago, and and you and he both had that experience of going all the way, but not you know not being able to to have that final piece of success. Right. Um, you know, how does that? How how do you manage that um, sense at the end when it doesn't work out, and you've put all this effort into it? What did you What did you learn from that in yourself when when you go right to that that brink or that edge, and it doesn't work out? Yeah. Well, um, I wouldn't change a thing um, from the learning experience side. I would love to change the final result. Yeah. <laughs> no question. Um, but um, from the experience side, um, it was really, um, in many ways, a bit of a blur. But when you sort of sit back and think about it, um, all the good things that happened um and all the, the little bit of luck, um, but also the the work that went into it as a as a team and the way everyone um, came together mm-hmm. and how 
um, essential every single person as part of the team is. Um, there's not one person in the room when you go that far who hasn't made some sort of a contribution that's it's extremely valuable. Mm. Uh, and that's right from the guy who folds the towels right all the way up to the head coach and, you know, and everything in between. Um, but it really, um, seeing how it all worked so closely together, like the gears fitting together to, to create this, um, this winning culture and winning team and, and just to fall short, you know, at the end of the day, I, I'm, I'm as proud, um, of what we did as if we had won. I just, I don't mm. have a ring for it and, mm -hmm. and the experience of it, um, to understand what the human body can go through, um, day after day in a, in a playoff series like that, um, to go through all the games that we went to and, you know, beat conference champions and beat division champions and, um, you know, really be sort of the underdog, you know, fighting your way all the way uh, mm -hmm. up. It was, it was uh, an amazing experience of um, togetherness, really. Mm -hmm. um, and to see that and to, and to relate that to other parts of your life, like your family and your business and, and how all those moving parts, um, it taught me never to take for granted uh, anyone um, that I'm working with or anyone who's working with me or for me. Mm. Um, it, it's, it was a really, um, it was, it was super, it was fun, like mm. crazy fun. Um, cause winning, winning is always fun. Um, <laughs> it's just, you know, just the, the falling short part, um, in some ways almost brought us like the, some of the guys who we lost with, we are almost more tight mm. than maybe if we had won and just kind of said, Hey, this is great. We did it. Um, yeah. yeah. So it, the sad thing I think, or one of the frustrating parts was the next year was mm -hmm. the lockout year. Um, so the 2005 season, mm -hmm. um, was a lockout season, which, um, didn't really pan out nor did it give us an opportunity to kind of take it to, you know, when, when you, when you taste it once and then you try mm -hmm. and get back to it again, maybe you have a chance and, and maybe you could win it again. And we were good that year too. So um, that was the one thing that was a little bit disappointing, um, not really having that opportunity because we lost that window and then the door started closing right. on the team that was that was as it was. So, yeah, yeah so it was um, just from that side of it, I wish we could have had a second opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> Well, some of us would like to have said we had a first one, so there you go. <laughs> right? Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, I'm gonna do 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 a piece I do in my podcast each time, yeah. which I didn't get to do uh, when we recorded the first uh, time we did this. Yeah, um, it's a little piece on your your birth date, and you are, are Leo nine, or born right. August 9th. So your yes. purpose is to separate from the secure and risk yourself in the unknown to use your strong personal perspective to give others the courage to follow their own passion and their own ideas. The greatest pleasure in life is doing what people say you cannot do, Walter Baggett. And no one knows this better than the Leo 9. They do the impossible all the time. 
However, this does take its toll. This combination requires that in spite of the strong individuals around them, they do what they know is right for them. Freedom for the Leo 9 must come from inner strength and not from exercising force outside. When they are sure of themselves and committed to a goal, opposition dissolves. When they hesitate, others sense their insecurity and opposition grows. Becoming their own person is not easy, but when it's achieved, no one questions their authority. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. I don't know if any of that resonates with you. Uh, I know it do. Well, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, I like that. That's great. Um, you know, anytime there's um, talk of Leo and, 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 I didn't, I didn't know the Leo nine was, was a thing. So that's, that's, that's pretty cool. That's pretty interesting. I'm also a tiger on the uh, Chinese calendar too. So <laughs> that, yeah. Right. So I'm, I'm full of that stuff. People are up against it. when they're <laughs> up with you. Well, that's a good way to circulate into, you know, family and stuff. How did you juggle? Um, we were talking before we got on a little bit about your blended family situation yes. and how did you manage family, kids, um, your partnership in in that grind uh, of a game, you know, what what, what was your delicate yeah. balancing act there? Well, I guess first and foremost, um, you know, I've got a I mean, Linda is a, is an amazing woman. Um, you know, she was a single mom of two girls for a little while before I came into the onto the scene. So she's already got an inner strength about her that mm-hmm. um, I can't even comprehend from that side of it. So. Um, I was very, to be honest, I didn't travel that much early in my career um, mm-hmm. in hockey. Um, although it's still 24-7, 365, you're, you're always on call. Um, I wasn't, I didn't uh, travel on the road very often early on and really wasn't until my last uh, three or four years in the league that I started uh, making most of the trips. And again, not all of them. So mm-hmm. I didn't have as much of a, a demand um, time-wise being away from home mm. until a little bit later in, in my career, um, which is probably why I lasted 19 seasons for the most part, <laughs> um, both both in my own head as, and as well for my family's sake. Um, so, um, but there's still sort of the you're always on um, mm. idea. And, and you know, as much as you try not to bring home uh, losses or wins or any issues that go on at work, it, it uh, inevitably will creep in. You're always, you know, seeing what the highlights are and you're looking to see what's going on in the league and, and what other people you've worked with are doing and, and everything else. So um, the balancing act really came from the strength of, of my wife mm. um, from that side. She, um, Linda, uh, knew what she was getting into. Um, she, we got married while I was um, in 2002. So I'd been in the league for, for seven years already. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like it was, it wasn't like she stumbled into it. She had full, full on knowledge of what, um, what she was getting into mm-hmm. and uh, completely supported that side of it. Um, Cause I, I think um again from her perspective she knew that not one day would i go to work feeling like i was going to work Mm. (laughs) i i always felt like i was um not that i would do it for free (laughs) but i would do it i would do it for free you know Mm. it's it's i've never felt like i was going to work um Mm. and our the girls recognize that both 
uh, Jade and, and Asia separately, our two girls have both said, you know, it was so sad when you weren't being renewed, your contract wasn't being renewed because you seem to be one of the people on, on this earth who really loves the job that he has. Mm. And, and it was, it was something that it, it was a real um, shocker for me. But um, so they recognized it um, just because I was, I was loving life. I mean, it mm. certainly was a, a fun, uh, fun ride. And it was mm-hmm. certainly a, a nice career. So um, again, I, I, my management came from um, the fact that I didn't feel like I was working. Um, mm. I was able to, uh, for several years, also coach track and field in the evenings mm. because I wasn't traveling with the team. So for a number of probably about 10 years, I was coaching track and field, um, you know, four to five days a week, mm. um, going to going to track and field practices as well as doing the striking conditioning position, which in many ways kept me current as to what was out there. Because a lot of times I, I feel that sometimes we get stuck in our little world of uh, being in the NHL and being in our own room and, you know, you're researching as much as you can and getting as much information as you can. Um, but I've just, I felt very fortunate that I was out and about and around other coaches daily mm. um, and watching and seeing and being around the Olympic Oval where there's some of the world's best speed skaters and I could kind of observe some of their training methods and um, really got me out mm. of the room <laughs> really in many ways mm. from that side of it. So, um, but my, yeah, I mean, my family, um, again, they knew what they were getting into. Uh, my son didn't because he was born in 2003. So, um, but he grew up with it. Um, mm. the, the weird thing, uh, we were always, I would always ask, Hey, do you want to play hockey? Do you want to learn how to skate? Like, you know, we have like, we have everything, at your disposal if you want to and he's and he was he was always oh, no not really i don't don't really want to learn it and this is a little kid four five six years old i didn't know until later and um once i was done in hockey that um his comment to linda my wife was that his mentality around hockey was that's what took his dad away from him mm-hmm. on a regular basis because i started traveling a little bit more when he was um four or five years old Mm. Um, so I was on the road, you know, probably for a little more than half the road trips. Um, but his recognition was that hockey, um, took his dad. So he didn't want anything, really anything to do with it. Um, which I made me sad because the sport is, is such a, an amazing, um, personal growth sport and Mm -hmm. team building and everything around it is just, um, uh, it's it's an amazing sport from that side of it. So it made me sad that that was an element that my job made him feel like he didn't want any, much to do with it. He's changed now. I mean, he's uh, he's 16 years old now. So he's he's, he's like, oh, maybe I should have learned how to play hockey. I could I might have been pretty good at it. <laughs> but you know, so he plays foot, football and rugby instead. So <laughs> yeah. How did how did um, you deal with the sort of exit moment and what you how have you regathered and reformatted your life since like what what it what is life about for you now post hockey well i'm honestly i'm doing a lot of the same um i was already involved um with the university of calgary basketball team um before i had um before i was done with the nhl 
um, I was asked uh, by the head coach of the men's team if I could help out with their summer programming. So during the summertime, I could work with uh, the university basketball team, but I obviously wasn't involved while the uh, while I was in in, in season in hockey. Um, so that transitioned. The initial, I guess, shock or disbelief, or you know, just you've been doing this 19 years. Why, you know, why why would it be any different? Mm. Um, to say, yeah, we're not going to renew you, and it's not because of performance. We just it's time for a change. So whatever the excuses um, that was made um, not to renew me, the crazy thing was I found out in March. <laughs> um, it wasn't even, yeah, it was, it, it was just circumstances arri arrived that um, I was being asked to uh, be part of a, um, with the strength and conditioning uh, coaches help with, with changing some of the protocols around the testing, the, the combine testing. Um, and, uh, and Reg Grant had asked me if I could do that. And I, I said, yeah, I, you know, I'd love to uh, just let me, you know, double check with, with Brian Burke and find out if, if this is something not, if it's not a conflict of interest, I just want to make sure that I'm doing it the right way. Um, so I threw that out there and almost forced him to, to, uh, show his cards. And he said, look, you know, I don't want you to be put in a position to be embarrassed to say, you know, I can't. I can't do this because I'm not with the team. I don't renew you. So this was, you know, wow. middle to the end of March when when I was told. So I still had you know two and a half weeks of season to to carry on plus uh, off season until until July first when my wow. my contract was up. So it was kind of a weird scenario. Um, the players found out in a hurry, um, mm -hmm. even though you try and keep keep it under your hat. Um, things things come out, and uh, so it was more of a um, you know, I, you know, obviously lots of pats on the shoulder and thanks for your help. And you know, it was actually probably better that the guys knew as, as we were leaving rather than, you know, finding out, you know, from an email or whatever, me phoning mm -hmm. them and, you know, not, not being able to look them in the eye and shake their hand mm -hmm. um, and tell them how much I appreciated working with them. So mm -hmm. um, that side of it was, was a bit of a shocker, but my transition um, was basically the head coach of the men's basketball team says, well, what can we do to have you here more often? <laughs> so it was, it was basically from, from one team to another team. Um, and uh, obviously I'd already done quite a bit of work with the, the guys um, in the university squad and the girls team as well. So it was a pretty easy transition from that side of it. Um, and then along the way, as, as I've become more available, um, I've, I've had, few uh, professional golfers asked me to do some work with them. So I do that. I still have players that coming back into town um, in the summertime that I work with some pro NHL um, and American league players that I'll work mm -hmm. with in the summer as well. Um, so it's, it's kind of, it's a lot of the same, mm -hmm. but just, just in a different, uh, in a different, a little bit, well, a different sport, but in a slightly different world. Um, so what, and, what do you love about what you do? Uh, I like watching uh, the athletes uh, develop into better athletes. <laughs> um, I, th from that side of it to just to have, you know, just to be able to add even an inch to someone's vertical. I, you know, I've, we've had a couple of guys, you know, add five inches to their vert um, as basketball players, which you know, just shocked a few people, but um, just in learning mechanics and, 
to see, cause I, and really I only get a small window of time to work with these guys, like from first year to fifth year, mm-hmm. you've got them for five years. Um, and you know, in some fairly formative times of their, of their life and their career. So 18 years to 23 generally is, is the age of your university students. I, I love watching, watching a kid walk into the room the first day and then and observing the development of them along the way. And then the fifth year, they're walking out the door, shaking your hand and you see the kind of athlete that's, that's walking away from you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the most satisfying part of, part of it. I, I, I love the, the camaraderie around team for sure. Um, but I like, um, I like tweaking the little things that each, each individual needs and, and thinking on the spot and, and massaging, I may have a, a big plan of what I'd like to do, but you're always having to change and adapt and adjust based on minutes played and injuries or, you know, right. inability to do certain exercises because they just don't have the, the capacity and just finding ways to, to develop them into that and, and give them the passion that I have. And I think they all sort of get that. They, they certainly understand that, that I have it. <laughs> and that they don't feel they don't ever feel like they, they, you know she's you know it's not like I ever show up saying I don't want to be here and it, right. you know it, my my line to anyone when they ask me how I'm doing is I'm better than most people ever <laughs> <laughs> I mean honestly I mean yeah, sure. like what do I have to complain about I mean, this is yeah. you know I, I'm in a I'm in a great space when it comes to being able to do what I love to do and I'll, you know whether it's it's hockey or basketball or you know, any other sport on top of that, the, the golfers and the um, soccer players and football players that I worked with. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a joy just to, to it's a, like a painting, like mm-hmm. what's, what are you going to paint today? And what are we going to, what are we, what kind of tweaks are we going to do? What kind of shading are we going to add to you kind of thing? So, yeah. Oh, that's, so, that's awesome. Yeah, last, fun. last question to bring yeah. us uh, being to a circle. Um, yeah. If you, if you had a chance to meet yourself, on the first day of training camp and the first year you worked for the flames, what would you, what, what advice would you give your younger self? Oh, um, well, partly get out of your own head. I think for the (laughs) most part, um, I think, um, yeah, what, what what I would say is, um, continue learning, uh, about the sport. Um, and, Try to take, um, try to take the science that you know, and mix it with the artist of coaching. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I walked into it pretty idealistic, thinking I'm going to periodize this, the season, and we're going to, you know, we're going to we're going to figure out the loading, and we're going to have a look at it. And you realize in a big hurry that's completely out of your control as a strength and conditioning coach because the head coach has the hammer. He's the one who's dictating the load. Um, but to create, be flexible um, and enjoy the ride. Enjoy every minute of it. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Well, sir, thank you for taking some well, more time with me. It's great oh, my to pleasure. You. And, yeah, uh, you too. We will, you, this will be out next week. So you can listen to the whole weaved together podcast. Oh, excellent. That'll be great. I'll look forward to it for sure. Beautiful. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Thank you.
Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.